Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm podcast. This is Lee. I am so glad you have joined me. I appreciate every single one of you listeners and I tell you, you are a dedicated bunch because uh, this past week I did a little research on how to do a podcast. I guess it's a better late than never episode 27. I thought I'll look up how this should actually be done. <laughs> and um, it turns out I've been doing it completely wrong. One of the uh, main rules was never have a podcast where you just talk. And of course, that's what I've done so far. And you, loyal, wonderful listeners, must care about bees so much that you overlooked that I've been breaking the number one rule of podcasting. The other rule of podcasting was to have this very quiet background and while I I do try to get as quiet spot in the house as I can many of you have heard Merkel the dachshund either bark or um, jingle around with his collar or smack and chew on his bone in nearby because he will holler if he can't see me at all times when I'm home so thank you for putting up with that and caring about bees so much that you've just overlooked all that I appreciate you you doing that and I tell you it really it helps me because as I've learned the hard way you know perfection is the enemy of done and if I think too hard about it then I would never get any of these done today I am going to share some listener messages and mail with you I really enjoy hearing from all of you when you write on the Facebook page or when you send email and tell me about what's going on in your yard. I've had several listener questions. I'm going to try to get to some of those today. This first note is from Tim in South Texas. Lee, I was just listening to your first podcast on summer bee plants, and you were talking about the bees backfilling the brood nest before swarming in a Langstroth. While you can put another box under the existing brood nest in a Langstroth, a top bar hive or a long Langstroth doesn't give you that option. SMDH. I'm a third year beekeeper and I had that happen both this year due to our extremely strong, unusual flow in South Texas. I learned a hard lesson about how to manage those. You need to cull the bars or the frames of nectar no matter if it's capped and put new ones into where the brood nest should be. If you don't, they'll swarm. And you may end up losing your colony if they decide to abscond or your virgin queen never comes back from mating. My tart bar hive went from awesome to completely failed in a month and a half. For the long lang, they've swarmed as well, but I have way more bees left. I rubbed a comb of eggs and larvae from my healthy top bar and rubber banded it to an empty frame for the lang. Hopefully, it'll either yield a new queen, I couldn't find the new one, or stimulate the new queen and colony to clear out some stores and expand a brood nest. Anyway, love your podcast. Keep it up, Tim. Thank you so much for this wonderful update, Tim. And, you know, the that issue with top bars, I, I um, want to try a long lang. Um, I like them with, because of the idea of no lifting heavier than a frame. And I see that being attractive uh, in my older older than <laughs> older yet years so I'm very interested and yes I believe that is an issue I have seen on uh, pictures and videos that I've seen of people essentially checkerboarding the top bars just like you've described and I'll tell you a tip you may already know this but if you have to take out 
frames of honey that are not capped. Maybe they're pretty pretty uh, dry, meaning um, this is the old-fashioned way to check if your honey is ready for bottling. And that is you turn the frame sideways. Of course, you can't do that with a top bar, but you might for the long lying if you're using standard frames. So you turn it sideways and um, shake it really hard over a surface that you can see if any drops of nectar come out. And if drops of nectar come out, it is not dry enough to bottle. But the old timers, that's how they used to test the honey. And if nothing comes out, not a single drop, then they say it is dry enough to bottle. Now, the um, I can't remember the name of the little tool that you check the moisture content of honey, honey with. They've come down in price so much that if you're bottling very much honey at all, then that's a good investment to just make sure before you put it in jars that it's dry enough because if it is got too much moisture content, of course it will ferment and create an awful kind of pre-mead. <laughs> Not the good kind of mead, but the pre-mead. So, um, so, so anyway, that's about the about uh, honey. But if you have to take off uncapped frames, and let's say they're dry enough that when you shake it, nothing comes out, but you're still a little concerned, there's a trick with a dehumidifier, if you happen to have one. In the mountains of western North Carolina, you probably have a dehumidifier because it so, gets so damp here. And often it's cool enough, not this month, but often it's cool enough that if you have an air conditioner, it won't come on because it's too cool, but the air is just soaking wet. So um, I have two dehumidifiers, one upstairs and one downstairs, and they are very useful for drying honey. If you take one and put it in a, a small, as small a room as you can find and turn the thing on full blast with the, the honey supers stacked around, ideally with some, a fan blowing. On the, I have these little bitty fans. I don't know where I got those, but they're two little metal fans about probably 10 inches across. And I just point them facing completely down. I put a screen top on top of the stack of supers and I blow those little fans down through them with the dehumidifier. And you can dry out your honey uh, even if it's not capped with that setup. Sometimes it, our bees sometimes have trouble capping the honey if it's just uh, too drenched out there and it can sit uncapped in the hive a long time. So if you have to go ahead and take it off and it's not capped, um, then that is one way to dry it out. And the other thing, I wonder, Tim, if you've seen those uh, top bars where they have built a shallow frame or, or I guess a shallow rim around the top to put, to use essentially as little supers and they have shallow frames on top of those. And that might be something just to have in reserve if you get another strong flow like that. And to me, I know that that somewhat defeats the purpose of, of no lifting, but that would be really fabulous to have for those fabulous honey seasons that come around now and then. And then you could just take them off and not use them when you don't need them. And the, um, for those of you who haven't messed around with a top bar hive or with foundationless frames. I'm using a lot more foundationless frames and I did have to learn the hard way about handling them that you can't turn that frame sideways 
until it's with a foundationless frame until it is well attached to the sides and the bottom of the frame and if it's full of honey I wouldn't even do it then but I've had to kind of train myself because it's not you know when I first pick up the frame it's not always clear if it's a foundationless frame and I've had to break that habit of just turning it flipping it over to look at the other side and there's a little procedure you go through essentially you're keeping the pull of gravity always on the top or the bottom of that frame but never on the flat surface so you flip it around like that and um, that has worked pretty well. I like going foundationless. That is my goal. I have been somewhat amazed at how many drones the bees make. And there's some pretty interesting research as to whether the bees need more drones than we typically allow them to have with foundation. I mean, if you're mating queens, and that's one of the reasons why I've been doing it, then it's definitely going to help with the availability of drones to get your queens well mated. And then there's the whole issue of how, what, you know, the chemical load in the wax foundation. Um, I, I've really heard mixed f things about this because um, a mentor that I, I really respect had said that, you know, several years ago, had said, I don't think it's turned out to be as much as I originally thought. But then I heard uh, Kim. Uh, is it Flotum, Flotum, who's the editor of Bee Culture magazine, um, to my surprise in one of his presentations that I saw on YouTube about keeping bees healthy, he talked about his concerns um, with chemicals in the foundation um, affecting the basically the reproductive health of his, particularly the queens and the drones and shortening lifespans of the workers. And he's not a person, to my knowledge, that is, um, you know, kind of a proponent of organic per se. And so that that pretty much surprised me. So it's probably good to just get out of the, if you can, um, it, the commercial wax supply. Because I, I have questions too on, you know, do they, and maybe if anybody knows the answer, please let me know. Um, do they irradiate the wax that they use for foundation? Because if not, that's kind of creepy with all the weird, you know, new diseases coming in with the bees that we could be sharing it. But anyway, um, then there's also for me the, the issue of the plastic. I don't like it that I can't recycle the plastic foundation. It is not as easy as I had imagined to scrape it and start all over. It is possible, and, and um, but it's not as easy as I'd hoped. So anyway, there's a lot of reasons to try the foundation list of foundation free, and that's what I am trying out right now. So I want to back up uh, just a second. I realize I, I may have misspoke. Um, when I was talking about using the dehumidifier to finish drying out the honey, I want to be very clear that I'm talking about partially capped frames, hopefully that are mostly capped or partially capped, and frames that you have done the vigorous shake test and no nectar flies out. Um, you know, those are the ones that, to me, to take it just to the the... Uh, dryness that I prefer uh, the dehumidifier trick so I just wanted to be clear that I'm not talking about whipping out you know just nectar frames and drying it down um, and and that brings me back around to a listener question that has come in several times from beginners about how much honey they should hope or expect to take their first year and I think I guess it's 
clear that if you have um, fed your bees with sugar water, then you don't want to take that honey because it's not really honey. It's just, um, you know, bee processed sugar water. So the other, but it's valuable to them because if it's capped, you know, honey, sugar honey <laughs> that they've made out of their feed, uh, it is, it's valuable to them for getting through the winter. And on that topic, I know it is so hard to wait for a good honey harvest. And by all means, you know, if you have frames that you know were that the bees filled when you were not feeding them, and this goes back to if it was your first year, you probably were feeding them because you were trying to get them to drop a lot of foundation. But if there are frames that you know you weren't feeding them, then by all means, you know, take a sample, sample tester because you've worked hard and you want to get a taste of that first real honey because that will get you hooked and keep you going even through the difficult times. But the thing I'd like to say to uh, anybody wondering how much honey to take is I truly believe it pays to be conservative on this to give it your best shot to leave enough honey for the bees to overwinter on their own honey. Um, there was a Facebook discussion that I saw recently, and and I just, I mean, it, I just can't believe that there's people out there that were saying, very matter-of-factly, that you should take all the honey, because honey was bad for the bees to overwinter. And I, I just stopped, because I'm like, and, and they were serious, um, because, and you know, that's what commercial beekeepers have done for a long time but then again look at the shape that our bees health is in and as I said before you know honey is the best I mean obviously honey is the best feed for the bees that is what bees were designed to eat that's why they make it um, that said sugar water solution sugars honey is still better for the bees than starving to death and that seems like it would be obvious but Apparently, it's not obvious to everybody. So, the thing I'd like to share with you is something I heard recently. It was on a podcast, a gardening podcast, and the woman's name is Kimmerer, um, last name Kimmerer, and she is a uh, Native American um, enrolled tribe member in a um, northern tribe that I cannot pronounce the name right now but she was talking about the concept of honorable harvest and she was talking about it in terms of wild crafting like collecting wild herbs and wild crafting things that the concept in their culture of honorable harvest was that you never took the first plant that you found because at that time you would you weren't sure how many more plants there were out there and if the population was capable of giving you that plant and so I love this term honorable harvest I have put on my honey bottles for a long time ethical harvest because to me leaving the bees enough honey to overwinter on or at least I hope enough you know I'll leave them the what's considered the standard amount and if that's not enough then yes I will um, feed them ideally I have honey frames from my own yard stashed in the freezer and then I'm not against feeding sugar if I have to because that's better than starving to death but this concept of an honorable harvest or ethical harvest I would really love more people to think of it that way that the the idea that part of our reciprocity 
with our bees is that we make sure that they have enough of their own labor, the fruits of their labor, to get through the winter on. And whether that, if that strikes you as something ethically and right with your heart, then yay. And on the other hand, um, if, it, if you don't particularly care about that, and if you just want the practical aspect, then part of the practical aspect is if you take that honey off, you have to work, you have to get it off, um, you have to harv- uh, extract it, bottle it, sell it, then they're going to be short of honey. So you have to make feed, get the feed out there, make sure it's capped on time. So that's a lot of work. And the calculations on it, you know, that you'll see, it's like, okay, my honey's worth this many dollars a pound, and yet I can make sugar water for much cheaper than that. And that's probably true. But it makes me wonder, you know, is that taking, if you priced your labor, the for doing all that work is it really that much cheaper and um and just in terms of wear and tear on your body so there's i mean and maybe maybe leaving the honey on it might not win from a financial point of view but so many beekeepers that i really admire and trust say that the bees just do better if you let them overwinter on their own honey. And that's what I've seen with my own eyes. Uh, any hive that goes into winter with its own honey does much better than one that for whatever reason doesn't have enough and I have to um, supplement. So the, just to keep that, if you want to, the concept of the honorable harvest. And that is one of the ways we show respect to our bees in this reciprocal relationship that we are in with them as beekeepers. So the next um, listener message came from Dave and Dave says, Lee, I've run into an issue with one of my colonies that I started from a nuke back in April. While this queen admittedly hadn't been a performer per se, her lackluster brood pattern hasn't been worth fussing over until about roughly two weeks ago. That's when I noticed a lack of egg and larva volume. As of a week ago tomorrow, I found no milk brood or eggs at all and a limited amount of capped brood. I readily admit that I'm not the absolute best egg finder in the game, but I could find nothing but some spotty capped brood. I ended up tearing those boxes down. I could not find the queen anywhere. I know there's a small chance I could have missed her, but I did my absolute best to go through. I also noticed a lot of the bottom box brood nests being backfilled with nectar. After coming up empty, I decided to grab a partial frame of eggs and larvae from a swarm that I recently managed to catch and swap it in for one of the partially backfill frames. This was on a Friday, the next day. I also pulled a larger frame of various larvae eggs and added over the weekend, just for extra measure. Fast forward to today, and I decided I would check the frames I added. Nothing at all on the second frame, and a couple of empty cups on the first. Shouldn't I have at least seen something closer to a cap cell by now? I'm a bit perplexed as to what I'm actually dealing with. Any thoughts or ideas on where to go next? Thanks, Dave. Well, Dave, this question also has come in quite a bit about dealing with an apparently queenless hive in the midsummer that we're in. And in fact, an officer in my bee club (laughs) said, would you please talk about um, hives that appear to be queenless? Because they're getting a lot of calls about this. Many times this time of year, at least in my hives, the bees decide to supersede their queen about this time of year. I think, you know, she's probably 
laid up a, a big uh, brood nest for months now and she may be starting to peter out and they may determine that in ways that I don't know and on the other hand um, I don't know maybe they they do it for whatever reasons that uh, bees do things but this is the catch and this is something I've noticed over the years it you know when you first go in and you say wait a minute I don't see any eggs and you know most of this open brood is actually pretty chunky you know I don't see any tiny open brood and what's happened to my queen and it's especially confusing if you don't see a queen cell and the thing to remember is if the bees are in the process of requeening that is a like a minimum of a, about a three-week process before you are going to have a new baby queen even start on that new brood nest if the hive is of a certain size if it's a pretty big hive and and this I found when I'm waiting on a queen return if it's a big hive I kind of dread it because when I go in to check and see if she's laying I might have to go through a lot of boxes and a lot of frames before I find her somewhere because when she comes back and starts to lay it's going to be a tiny little patch of eggs and it, you know she will have had to lay about f a minimum five days before even before they start capping which is of course easier to spot so requeening can take a lot longer than it feels like it should. Michael Bush um, on his website and book and presentations has what he calls the panacea cure for this. And the panacea cure, <laughs> I think that's a funny name but it's so true, is exactly what Dave said about put a frame of um, eggs and open brood in there from another hive. Shake off the bees and put it in this hive that you think might be queenless and then watch it and so in about um, four or five days if you go in there and look at that frame again and I, f I tell you it's handy to mark that frame with a thumbtack or a sharpie or something so you'll know which one you're going back to look at because sometimes you go back and you pull out a frame and you're like oh this is the frame I put in but wait there's eggs on it and it turns out that's your new queen has started laying so mark that frame and um, if they are not drawing queen cells on it then give it another week you know give them another frame of eggs and open larvae and just be patient because you would be amazed at the number of times that after what seems like an eternity and seems like it should be too long um, that a queen you know finally shows up mated starts her brood nest as long as you're adding those frames of open brood if they need I mean and, and definitely try to get as young as possible uh, preferably some eggs in case so that there will definitely be larvae of the right age for them to start on ideally not that this happens in the real world but ideally you would want it to be young um, comb like light as light comb as possible if you don't have light comb you can deal do the little um, scrapes on the comb it's the Mel I think it's Dickinson the on-the-spot queen method where you um, basically you're breaking down the lower wall of a row of uh, eggs or tiny larvae so that if they want to build a queen cell from them then you've made a way for them to drop a queen cell because it's difficult for them to tear down the comb that has all the cocoon layers and the hard wax in it so um, as you're adding those egg and larva frame the odor of that egg and larva will prevent laying workers 
um, because open brood is seems to be as powerful a prevention of laying workers as uh, a, a queen. Um, but so you're preventing that and you're giving it plenty of time to see uh, if they're actually in the process of a queen. And the reason why it pays to be patient on this is um, that if you buy a queen and put it in there and they're in the process, then they will kill her. Um, and it's a, it's a, a bummer to be that queen and it's also a bummer to lose your money that you paid for that queen so uh, patience in that process remember that as you're at you're adding that frame of uh, larva you're adding a little bit to the population which is not growing uh, during this procedure and then also you're preventing laying workers by keeping that going and then um, you know just keep checking and if it's truly truly been uh, you know, if you if if you definitely don't have eggs in three weeks, then then by all means, you know, try the mated queen. But you might want to watch and uh, and you might want to not remove the cork from the candy plug in the queen cage and you know, put put it in there. You know, as uh, per the instructions, and then in a couple days, go back, pull that queen cage out, and look and see how they are acting on that queen cage if they're still if they're kind of in this flurry of activity this kind of ball of kind of uh, busyness like uh, it's, it's kind of choppy motion uh, it is sort of aggressive but it's this hurly-burly on the cage then that's not friendly and they may you know again check again for a queen before you release that uh, cage queen on the other hand if they're just kind of you know if they're kind of they're not a huge ball of bees but they're tending to her and kind of strolling around um, then you uh, again check for a natural queen um, and you can remove that cork and let them start to work on the candy plug but uh, patience in waiting for that requeening is really important in my opinion anyway so finally, I had this wonderful email from Matthew in West Virginia. And West Virginia, that, that terrain is very much like our terrain here in the Highlands of North Carolina. So Matthew writes, this is really fun. Um, thanks for getting back to me. I had some excitement happen since I emailed you. Just some background. I hope you do enjoy reading stories from some newbies. Ha ha. I started out with four nukes. I caught my first swarm sometime over Memorial Day weekend, so that had me at five hives. I checked on them. I think the day or the day after I emailed you, I had two of, the, two of them swarm on me. One hive had already emerged a new queen. However, I caught the other in time and had about 14 to 16 capped queen cells. Then I got to work ended up making three to five frame nukes and two 10 frame splits. It was hot and muggy. I just about had a heat stroke and was half out of it. Next day I was worried because I took some nurse bees from a few of the hives that didn't swarm and couldn't find the queen and was hoping and praying I didn't accidentally throw one of the queens in the boxes I'd made up. Three of the five new hives I made the queen already emerged within 24 hours of me splitting them. One of the hives that I happened to like happened to you she was emerging in my hands really neat I'll be checking on at least one of the new splits and hopefully see some eggs this weekend but anyway just wanted to shoot you a story and let you know you're doing a great job on the podcast thank you Matthew and keep it up because you're really helping us new beekeepers out there thank you so much for this because it is one of it is so exciting to me to have new beekeepers 
just giving it a shot at making splits and nukes of their own. Because honestly, this is the key. Um, in my experience, this is the key to being able to be sustainable, to keep provide your own bees to your own bad self. And yes, it's an experiment. And yes, you know, sometimes things will screw up. There are many things you learn the hard way. Um, but but that making of new hives is the thing that is going to keep you a beekeeper um, and not having to buy bees all the time. And it's losing your, all the bees is so discouraging. But if you learn to make lots of bees, then you'll always have some spares. You'll always have a few extras. You might have too many extras. You may be forced to sell nukes for 150 bucks a piece, which I know will really hurt all your feelings. <laughs> so bravo, Matthew, and bravo to all of you who have given it a shot this year, the first time of making your own uh, queens and nukes. And there must have been at least five or six people who've written me and say that they, they gave it a shot. And, um, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it is a skill that is going to pay off. And I am cheering all of you on because I think that is just so wonderful. Well, I have um, used up my time again. I've got like three more topics I didn't even get to. But I will hopefully do another one for you soon. Again, thank you for putting up with all my lack of um, podcast skills. But I sure do enjoy talking to you. And I sure do enjoy hearing from you. So have a great week. Hope your bees do great and I'll talk to you soon.